Hello, neighbors. <laughs> I, I feel a little underdressed right now. I feel like I, I should be putting on a cardigan or something right now. We'll work on that as the series goes on. Uh, you will be humming that song and singing those words for the next three weeks. My gift to you. You're welcome. That's... Um, we are starting off this brand new series, like Jason said, called Won't You Be My Neighbor? Um, and, and if this is your first time joining us, over the next few weeks, you're going to get a, an inside look into what makes us tick around here, what, what our heart is for. We, we want to be a place. We long to be a place where everyone is welcome, regardless of where they are on their spiritual journeys, to come and explore what it means to have a relationship with Jesus. And we are unapologetic about that because we really believe that Jesus has something good to offer to everyone. Not, not only the assurance of eternal life, but also in our earthly life that as we follow him, we get better at life and life goes better. So everything that we do around here is trying to allow people to take a next step into a growing relationship with Jesus. And to that end, we have some core values that, that shape the way that we think and the way that we plan around here. One of the core values that we have is that an empty seat is a serious thing, meaning that, that every seat that we have in here in the auditorium represents an opportunity for a friend or a family member or a neighbor to come and experience and explore who Jesus is. And it's a reminder to us that we as individuals have a role to play in the spiritual journeys of our friends and our family in our neighbors. So we're kicking off this new, new series. It's going to be all about our neighbors. So to, to, to think through that, what comes to mind when you see the word or hear the word neighbor? Almost everybody in here either live in a neighborhood, you live in an apartment complex, we all have neighbors, and our neighbors over time end up growing into some reputations. Uh, maybe you have the, the yippy dog neighbor that for some reason in the middle of the night, 2.30, the dog just starts barking at nothing. And everybody else in the neighborhood hears the dog except for the yippy dog neighbor. Or, or maybe you have the, the perfect lawn neighbor, the, the guy whose lawn looks like, I mean, it looks like a, a fairway down in Augusta National. He, he brings in all the guys to, to get the lawn fertilized. He cuts it twice, so he gets the nice crisscross uh, look to his lawn. The arch nemesis of the, the perfect lawn guy is the weed guy. That, that would be me. I, I do not think that it's a coincidence that both grass and weeds are the same color, and I am perfectly fine with it. I don't spend any time on my lawn whatsoever. Or, or maybe you have the, the nosy neighbor who always knows everybody else's business, or you have the talkative neighbor that, that you know after the first word you're in for a long haul and you're looking at your watch the whole time. We have all kinds of neighbors. Some we like, some we may like to see move. But regardless of what our neighbors are, who they are, we are called to be good neighbors. Uh, so to kick us off in this series about what it means to be a good neighbor, I want to introduce you to a term that we'll be coming back to throughout the series, and the word is neighboring. And, and our definition of neighboring for the, this series is the art of living out Jesus' greatest commandment. Jesus had some very pointed uh, some very concrete and some intentional thoughts on how it is that we are to treat our neighbors. And throughout this series, we're going to talk about the power of relationships, the power of uh, influence over a long period of time with the people in our lives, and what it means to love and care for our neighbors. And this morning, to get things started, we're going to look at a passage of Scripture that Jesus had with this religious leader. 
and it's centered around this topic of neighboring. And what Jesus is going to do is to give us a simple and a powerful plan that if we would actually take it to heart, that it has the potential to radically change our communities. It's found in Luke chapter 10. It kicks off this way. It says, one day an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question, teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? He looks at Jesus and says, in essence, what is it that is most important to God? How do I line up my life so that it matches up, so that it mirrors what God says is most important, what matters to him the most? And Jesus, like he is apt to do, instead of answering that question directly, he turns the script and asks the guy a question of his own. Jesus replied, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? The law of Moses is the first five books of the Old Testament. And throughout the day, the Jewish people would recite portions of that scripture just to remind themselves of who God is and what he's called them to. And this guy, as an expert in the law, would actually have the entire five books memorized. So he recalls from his memory two statements in in the Old Testament, in the the, um, law of Moses, that encapsulates and summarizes all of scripture and so he quotes it back he quotes out of Deuteronomy and Leviticus the man answered you must love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul with all your strength and all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself right Jesus told him do this and you will live Jesus affirms this man's statement and understanding of what life is that that real life with God is boiled down to loving God and loving your neighbor. That is, we, we find our joy, uh, we find our peace, we find our sense of security in God, and then the overflow of that love, the, the evidence, the outward evidence of that love for God is found in how we treat our neighbors. Our tendency is to try to separate these two and to think in our minds that, well, loving God is a, is a private thing, so we have these personal disciplines of prayer, of, of reading the Bible, of, of maybe coming together to come to church and, and think that that is what it means to love God. But God won't let us divorce these two. He says, no, the way that you love me is that you love the person over there. You love the person across the street. That's how you fulfill my command. Loving God and loving our neighbor cannot be separated well the guy continues on he says he wanted to justify his actions so he asked Jesus and who is my neighbor he he does what what we tend to do or want to do when we think of this idea of loving our neighbor he wanted to make that circle as small as possible so that it could be easy for him to fulfill this command and so he in his mind like there are some people that I want to justify not loving so who's in who's out what are the criteria what are the rules that i need to follow well jesus replies with a really well-known story if you've ever heard the the phrase the good samaritan it it has its roots in this story here jesus continues as jesus replied with a story he said a jewish man was traveling from jerusalem down to jericho and he was attacked by bandits they stripped him of his clothes beat him up and left him half dead beside the road the audience that had gathered around Jesus would know this road really well. There's this 18-mile stretch that goes from, Jer- from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and it was this really windy, steep mountain path. 
And there's switchback curves and these rock outcroppings everywhere. And it was known where these bandits would kind of hide behind the rocks and they would pounce on these, um, these travelers. Well, that, that's what happened here. There's this Jewish man that was making his way down and he gets attacked by these robbers. And verse 31 continues, says, but chance, a priest came along. That's a stroke of luck, right? If there's anybody that would do the right thing, it would be the priest. But when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the street and passed him by. And maybe we don't know exactly, but we, in his mind, he was probably justifying his own behavior as well. He, he was a really important guy, had a lot of responsibilities. Maybe he was behind schedule. And, and beside, there is this part of the Jewish law that said that if a priest were to touch a dead body, that he would be considered ceremonially unclean. And he'd have to go through this long process. And in the meanwhile, he wouldn't be able to tend to the temple services. So maybe in his mind, he thinks, this could get messy. This could get complicated, not just for me, but also for the people that I serve at the temple. Regardless of the reason, he decides to leave the guy there, maybe assuming that somebody else behind him will take care of him. The next guy up is a temple assistant. He says the temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. Uh, The the temple assistant would be kind of the right-hand man to the priest didn't have the same uh, restrictions from the Jewish law but again for whatever reason he decided to pass by maybe he wasn't that far behind the priest and he was just following his boss's lead but again he sees the man lying there does nothing and crosses by and passes him and now Jesus is about to completely flip the script and he is going to raise the most unlikeliest of heroes it says then a despised Samaritan came along and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. What we need to understand, maybe it's hard for us to understand, there was this centuries-long hatred between the Samaritans and the Jews. They despised each other. And so if there was anybody that they could justify walking by, it would be the Samaritan. He could lean into centuries and generations of prejudice and say, that guy's my enemy. He does not deserve my time. But yet he was the only one who felt compassion and actually did something about it. It says, going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. And then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. He got down off of his donkey. He he saw what was happening. He, he, He tended to the immediate needs that he had, bandaged up the wounds, and then went out of his way, dropped him off at an inn, which would be kind of a modern day clinic took care of him there spent his own money to care for it and went so far as to tell the innkeeper here I'm going to give you a little bit of money but start a tab and if his care costs more than what I'm paying you I'll come back and make good on it now Jesus asked the question now which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits Jesus asked and the man replied the one who showed him mercy And then Jesus said, yes. Now go and do the same. Just this really interesting interaction between Jesus and this man. The the man starts off asking this rules-based question. He, He says, who is my neighbor? He wanted to know what the criteria were. He wanted to know who was in, who was out. But Jesus said, buddy, you're asking the wrong question. The question is not a rules question, but a relationship question. The real question is, are you neighborly? 
Do, do you have the kind of heart that has compassion for people? Do you have the kind of heart that cares for the people that you come into contact with during the road of life? You and I don't run into people who are literally beat up and laying on the side of the road very often. But we do run into people all the time that are beat up by life. It might be the guy who just lost his job again. He just got this job and now he's wondering, how am I going to make ends meet? Or somebody, uh, the, their spouse just served them divorce papers. Or maybe it's a friend whose boyfriend or girlfriend just dumped them. Or someone who's been fighting a chronic illness for a long time. We walk through life all the time, and there are a lot of people we come into contact that on the outside look like they have it all together. But inwardly, their life is just falling apart. They feel alone. They feel trapped. They're just walking around hurting all the time, and it feels to them like life is against them. And maybe they've taken the next step and are starting to think that God is against them. In the Kanawha Valley, statistics would tell us that there are about 150,000 people that are not connected to a Bible-believing church. There are 150,000 people that are just wandering through life, wondering if God is against them. They don't know what we know. They don't know that Jesus is for them. We know the joy. We know the hope and the peace that comes in Christ. But they don't know this God that is chasing after them. And, and increasingly, we live in this culture where people are more and more indifferent to pursuing God on their own. So the question for us to wrestle with is, how do we let them know that they are not alone? How do we let them know that Jesus is for them? Here's the bottom line if you're taking notes this morning, is that people won't know that Jesus is for them until they know that we are for them. Jesus narrowed everything down in all of Scripture to these two commands, this one command— love God with your whole being and tied directly to that love your neighbor as yourself he's telling us this is crucial all of the commands hinge on your understanding and in your obedience to this command I, I want your whole life to be about loving me with all that you have by loving your neighbor why does he connect those two? I, I think the reason is, is that because by loving people, by being for your neighbor, maybe someday they'll come to understand that God is for them too. This God that we serve also is for them. In the great commandment, Jesus gave us this really simple plan that if we as believers just took it at face value and, and really took the steps to love our neighbors, it would change our neighborhoods and communities. So over the next few weeks, we're going to take a serious look, to consider seriously, what does it look like for me to become a good neighbor, that, to live the kind of life that I am for my neighbor, and as a result of that, they may know that my God is for them too. So I want to unpack a few principles of neighboring that we see in the example of the Good Samaritans. What does it mean for us to be a good neighbor? The first thing is, is that neighboring begins with compassion. Jesus tells us that, that unlike the Samaritan and unlike the priest, the Samaritan's heart was full of compassion, and he actually acted on that. 
the first thing that we have to understand is that being a good neighbor is a posture of the heart. Compassion is this willingness, this desire to put ourselves in the shoes of the people around us, to see the world through their lens, to, to see the needs that they have in their life, and then to do for them what we wish someone would do for us if we were in their same shoes. What that means for us is that, that we need to learn how to open up our eyes, to imagine, to envision some of the needs of the people that we see every day. That, that single mom that lives down the street who has to work double shifts just to make ends meet. What, what are some of the needs that she might have in her life? Could, could you go mow her lawn? Could, could you fix a meal for her every once in a while? What about the, the widower who lives around the block, just lost his wife of 40 years, and now he sits at home alone in his, in his house at night? Would, would he enjoy coming over to your house and having dinner with you and, and your family and your kids? Would that bring a spark back into his life? Or, or that young couple just had their first baby, but, but their families live in another state and they don't have the support group. What would it look like for you to maybe offer babysitting services to them? neighboring begins with putting yourself in their shoes to sit down and begin to see the world through their perspective see what those needs are determine how would you feel if you were in their shoes and then act on it how would you want others to treat you if you were in that same place neighboring begins with compassion the second is that neighboring requires contact the samaritan got off of his donkey he didn't just feel compassion he actually acted on it. he got down off of his donkey and he tended to the man's needs if people are going to know that we are for them then that means that we have to enter into their world as followers of jesus we can't just isolate ourselves from the world and live in our christian bubbles we have the responsibility to be going towards them I think sometimes we convince ourselves that, that the way to love God best is to separate ourselves from the world. And, and we can get really inward in our thinking. We make the, the Christian life only about what happens on Sunday morning. But if that's the only outward sign of our love for God, then we will be no different than the hypocritical priest and temple assistant who, who were one way in their religious service but then refuse to extend God's love to someone that they came around on the path of life. We are called to gather together. That's an absolute essential to, to our spiritual nourishment. We are called to gather together. And as a church, we spend time and resources and energy planning the kinds of environments where, where we can love God with our mind, where, where we can learn more about who he is, where we can express outwardly this worship uh, back to God, but there must be in our lives an increasing urgency to love God in our going out as well. That when we walk out of these doors on a Sunday morning, that we are passionate and compassionate towards the, the people that we are going to come across in our everyday lives. We have to remember um, that, that we are as much the church around our kitchen tables and around the, the sidelines of the ball field or at dance recitals, as we are when we gather here on a Sunday morning, neighboring requires that we go out and that there is contact with our life and their lives. And then lastly, or thirdly, uh, neighboring always has a cost. To love someone only when it's convenient. 
To love someone only with the leftovers or the excess of my life is not really love at all. Neighboring, the the kind of love that that, um, fulfills the great commandment, it always has a cost associated with it. There's always a risk associated with it. The the priest and the, the temple worker, they evaluated the cost of helping this hurt man and determined that it, the cost was too high. It was too much of an inconvenience. It may cause a hassle in their lives. And so they, they passed by. But the Samaritan took a risk. He knew the cost. And he knew that there was nothing to be gained for himself personally by doing it. But yet he still acted. To, to say that he had covered whatever the expenses were, that's a risk. To tend to who normally would be an enemy of his, that's a risk loving our neighbor will always come with a cost and a risk it it may cost us time it may cost us money it may cost us um, resources energy it may inconvenience us in some ways in Galatians chapter 6 Paul reminds us and he says don't grow weary in doing good think about that if I have to be reminded not to grow weary then that must mean that doing good is hard work. That, that there's not always an, an immediate payback, that I need to hang in to it for the long haul. Neighboring will always cost us something. And then lastly, uh, neighboring starts with our literal neighbors. Well, obviously, the, the context of, of the story, um, neighbors include more than just our physical neighbors. But it definitely does include our literal neighbors. And I would put forth to us that the best way to fulfill the great commandment begins by loving our literal neighbors. God has planted us where we live for a reason. It's not an accident that you live where you live. And it's not because you fell in love with the floor plan. It's not because you love the school system. or It's not because it was all that you can afford. That God has a plan and a purpose for why he planted you where you are. There was a time in Paul's ministry where he was uh, in Athens, Greece, and he was gathered around some people that were trying to see who God was. And listen to what he tells them in Acts chapter 17. He says, From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And listen to this. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. That is true in 2019 as well. That, that God has orchestrated and ordained our steps so that we live where we live, where we live now for a reason. Now listen to the, to the reason. The next verse says, God did this. He orchestrated the times and the places so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. If that is true, then we live where we live because God has placed us in a specific place at a specific time for a reason. We live in our neighborhoods, in our communities, in our dorm rooms for a reason. And I love the visual that Paul places. He says, but God has placed you strategically in a place so that that neighbor of yours, when they begin reaching out to God, that they will have a handle to grab a hold of, your life to grab a hold of. If we will let that truth sink in, it will change the way that we drive into our neighborhoods after work. We will begin to see the people around us that we live with as the divine appointments 
that God designed them to be. God places this huge emphasis on our neighbors. And this is definitely one of those series where I feel like I'm just a half a step ahead of you. Um, I, I feel like I, I know my neighbors, I love my neighbors, but I have not been as intentional in caring for their needs as I have in caring for the needs of the church around here. So this is a, this is a, a real challenge for me. It's an area that I want to get better at. So to get started in this, I want us to do something. On the back of your message notes, flip that over, and there's a little symbolic neighborhood in there that looks like this. So that, that center box there represents your house. You can put your name, put your address there. The other eight represent your eight closest physical neighbors. If, if you're heading off to college and you want to apply that, say, consider that the, the eight closest dorm rooms. Or if you're in high school and you say, it'd be the eight closest lockers around my locker. But think through your physical neighbors, the people that you're going to be coming into contact with, and try to imagine the faces and the names of each of those. Studies reveal that the majority of Christians don't even know half the names of their literal neighbors. And, and it's hard to love someone when you don't even know their name. So here's the challenge that I have for us. What if we took on this challenge to fill in every one of those blocks with the first and the last names of our eight closest neighbors? And if there are some that you don't currently know, just take that as a challenge. Let, let, the, let those blank boxes serve as a prompt to say, I want all eight filled in so I can know the names and begin to know the lives of the neighbors that are around me. And I know for, for some, this may feel a little uncomfortable because you've lived beside of them or across from them for a long period of time, maybe for years, and you're wondering how that conversation would go. I, I would say, do what you can to push yourself out of that uncomfortableness and take a step. Next time you, you see them out and you're both across the street picking up your mail or mowing the grass, stop and say, I kind of feel silly asking this. We, we wave at each other day in and day out, but I can't remember your name. Can, can you tell me what your name is again? And then to just go back and fill in that block. I, I'm telling you, the, having a name can shift the relationship. It can pivot the relationship towards uh, a, a more close relationship it, it can go from a wave and hey man to hey mike how was your day to hey mike i i got something in the garage i need help moving can, can you come over and help me to eventually maybe hey mike i i saw where you had to move your mom in with you How, how's that going now granted that, that takes some time to get to that level but it starts with that first step of knowing their name good neighboring isn't this real complicated plan it, it just involves some small strategic steps to move from stranger to friend imagine what could happen if each of us took what Jesus said was the most important thing to do and then actually did it. Imagine if we each made the decision to be better neighbors, if we made that a priority, the priority over the next 12 months. And we made these small changes to get more involved in our communities, in the lives of our neighbors. There is so much potential in this. 
Because first, by becoming good neighbors, we become the kind of people that God intended us to be. He said, I want you to be the kind of people that naturally love the people in your lives the way that I love them. And then as a result of that, our communities become the kinds of places that God intended them to be. Our neighborhoods, our, our communities, the, the towns of Hurricane and Winfield and Milton and Barbersville, they can honestly be radically changed if we as followers would embrace this simple yet powerful command to begin to love them in such a way, to meet the needs in their lives in such a way that they conclude and they know that we are for them. And then over time, that might open the doors for them to begin to conclude that if they are for me, then maybe the God that they serve and that they talk about all the time is for me as well. And when that truth clicks in their lives, that's a game changer. That'll change somebody's life. Let me pray for us. God, you have made this plan to, to be an influence, to be a light in our communities so simple. You call us to chase after you with all that we have, with our soul, our mind, our strength. And as we think about what you've done for us, sometimes that's an easy thing for us to do, but then you connect something to it that maybe we don't always connect that the way that we love you is by and through loving our neighbors God help us to begin to see the world and to see the families and the friends and the neighbors the way that you do fill our hearts with compassion to begin to put ourselves in their shoes to begin to understand their stories a little bit, to see the world through their eyes, to see if there are some ways for us to meet a practical need in their lives so that they will come to the place of knowing that we are for them. God, give us that kind of heart. Give us the courage to act on that, to embrace this challenge of just first beginning with knowing the names of our neighbors. And then God open up doors for us to begin to know and to prove that we are for them so that, so that they will eventually know that you are for them too. God, we love you. We thank you for this time together. We give you our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, thanks for coming out, everybody. Come back for week two of Won't You Be My Neighbor next week. See you then.